All right, so what we're going to do is we're going to take a closer look tonight at the tabernacle, uh, the majority of what's remaining in the book of Exodus concerns the tabernacle. So I want to take a little bit closer look at that tonight. And then next week, we will finish this study called Echoes from Exodus. Uh, we'll look at the last couple of chapters in the book. And then we're going to be up against the holidays. So after next Wednesday's study is done, I want to take a two-week break. It'll be the Wednesday before Christmas and Wednesday before New Year's. Uh, just so that we have um, freedom to do other things as we uh, get close to the holidays. And then we'll pick up uh, the first Wednesday after uh, the first of the year in a new study. So that's kind of our plan of action. And uh, tonight I want to do is give you just kind of a feel for the tabernacle. And I want you to think of the main idea behind the tabernacle, God's dwelling place among mankind, as something that continues to stretch into the New Testament. I mentioned last week that one of the key words found in John chapter 1, verse 14, where in the New International Version, it says, he dwelt among us, he became flesh and dwelt among us, that the word there can actually be translated tabernacled among us. And I'm going to show you in a second here that that idea of God's desire to dwell among mankind is found from the beginning of uh, the Bible here in the book of Exodus all the way through the book of Revelation. So what we're going to do is we're going to get uh, our, an overview again of where we are. So here we are. We're right down at the end of this uh, study in chapters 25 through 40 in the tabernacle. We'll uh, take a look primarily uh, at the articles of furniture that are mentioned here. And then we're going to continue to cross-reference that into the New Testament a little bit. So what you might want to do tonight is have your Bible open to Exodus. But if you can stick a piece of paper in the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, we'll flip back and forth there a couple different times. So here is the image that we're using for the Old Testament tabernacle. Uh, this is quite an elaborate structure. It's something that is portable and it's a miniature Mount Sinai as we think about uh, uh, the people taking this portable structure with them in various places that God will move them as they go through the desert. Now, what's fascinating is what's inside this tabernacle structure. And each of these have a very special name attached to them. And we'll talk about each of these articles of furniture tonight and see what it prefigures. But we'll begin looking at the mercy seat. And this is uh, this structure here, the Ark of the Testimony. Uh, it is the probably most familiar piece of furniture in the tabernacle, only because it was made famous by Raiders of the Lost Ark. And um, what we find is uh, this uh, mercy seat with the cherubim that sits atop uh, is showing the Shekinah glory of God in the process of the priest that enters into the holy place. But there's other things that are in the tabernacle that are quite interesting. You have the menorah over here, this uh, seven-branch lampstand. You have an altar of incense. 
you have a table of showbread, you have a, a basin that's used for washing and the altar used for sacrifice. So I'll come back and I have some different pictures that I'll show you. Maybe they'll have a little bit more detail to them. But here's what I'd like to do by way of introduction to this closer look of the tabernacle. It's interesting to me that the book of Exodus actually reference this structure with different names. The tabernacle can be referenced by these five different names, sanctuary, tabernacle, the tent of meeting, the tabernacle of the congregation, and tabernacle of testimony. And uh, these cross-references here, you can look up on your own if you're interested in that. But uh, there's uh, a number of different names to refer to the same thing. So this is this tabernacle here is, uh, we are told, uh, is the way that people will see that God dwells with them. So if you have your Bible, turn to Exodus 25, and I want you to come down to verses 8 and 9. So this is the overall purpose for the instructions that are going to follow, and it's detailed here. You're really reading a schematic the rest of the way through Exodus for the tabernacle and the functions of it. But here's the purpose of it. In verse eight, it says, then have them make a sanctuary for me and I will dwell among them. That's the key verse there. Uh, I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. So it's not to be haphazard. It is to be very specific and it is to illustrate some things that will appear later on. So I already mentioned John chapter 1, verse 14, but it's interesting when you close out the Bible in Revelation chapter 21, verse 3, the promise is that God will continue to dwell among mankind. So you see this idea of God's dwelling among us, and in the New Testament uh, epistle letters, What's going to be fascinating is it's not just among us, it's within us as well. Many of the writings of the Apostle Paul talk about uh, the dwelling of God inside of us through the uh, presence of the Holy Spirit. But here's how the Bible ends. It says in Revelation 21, 1, that I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. So here the closing um, idea is built upon this initial idea that God dwelled with mankind in the garden dwelled among the Israelites in the tabernacle, dwelt among the Israelites in the temple, dwelt among all of mankind through the incarnation of Jesus, and then lastly, this promise of this new order, this new creation, this new, um, this new entity that is absence of tears and heartache and pain and sorrow, and God will dwell among mankind there as well. Uh, one last point on this slide, a tabernacle in some ways prefigures and foreshadows the ministry of Jesus. 
And we know this because of some of the statements that he makes about himself corresponds to some of the pieces of furniture that are found in the tabernacle. So he makes his dwelling among us, but I, I mentioned earlier that we're going to flip to Hebrews a couple different times. In Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 and 12, it's interesting that this portable Mount Sinai, this earthly tabernacle, is really patterned after and reflects upon a bigger tabernacle uh, that is made in the heavens. The writer of Hebrews, whom we do not know who the writer is, but he uses all these connections to the Old Testament, and he's trying to show that Jesus is greater than all of the um, the laws, the ceremonies, and uh, these articles of furniture. Uh, Jesus is greater than all those things that are found in the Old Testament. Verse 11 says, when Christ came as high priest of the good things that already are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made, that is to say, not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. So, the writer of Hebrews is saying that the tabernacle on earth is reflective of a greater tabernacle in the in the creation uh, uh, theater. And in, in creation, uh, Jesus, as the high priest, ascends and assumes his position of royalty and authority, and it is there that he makes intercession for mankind, just like the high priest did in the tabernacle in the Old Testament. So let me stop there. Did I lose you along the way anywhere? Do you have any questions? So there's a pattern to the tabernacle, and the pattern of the tabernacle is this prefab prefabbed structure that is used, um, and it is a cooperative uh, project. Uh, God designs it, the people pay for it, and build it. And we mentioned last week a little bit about having a willing heart, and uh, what we find is that uh, they are to make offerings given uh, to this project. It's interesting to me, when you go to Numbers chapter 2, that this becomes the centerpiece of the nation, and all of the tribes, the 12 tribes, will uh, dwell around the tabernacle, and they have their own order. If you were to read Numbers chapter 2, you'd find that all 10 tribes have a certain amount of territory, and they are precisely placed around the tabernacle. One author um, suggests that when you take in all of the tribes and the amount of people that the overall community with the tabernacle in the center uh, is approximately 12 square miles. So uh, it's it's a pretty big uh, thing when you think about how much space it takes up. And um, again, remember in terms of square miles, we're not talking 12 miles in, in each direction. 12 square miles is a summary of the amount of uh, 
you know, land or territory and stuff like that. So, uh, you know, it it's still pretty substantial in terms of how big it is. And the tribes will dwell, dwell around it. And in the book of Numbers, when God moves out and leads the people to another spot in the wilderness, um, they all have kind of their order uh, that they fall into as they exit. So anybody remember fire drills and that type of thing at school there, you had a certain order that you had to follow um, who goes first, who uh, follows that type of thing. So you have a similar type of pattern that's found in numbers chapter two. Any thoughts? So we talked a little bit about the prefigurement of the tabernacle to kind of close this loop just for a moment. In the book of Hebrews, um, you have these references, as I mentioned before, but you can find some allusions also in some of the other epistles in the New Testament. In particular, the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 21 and 22, is a, an important cross-reference. So you have this physical uh, structure but it is always prefiguring something that is spiritual. So when Paul writes to uh, the church at Ephesus, one of the seven churches of Asia Minor, you find him referencing the temple, not the tabernacle, but remember the temple is a fulfillment of the tabernacle. It's a more permanent structure. It has the exact same layout with the exact same pieces of furniture in it. So in Ephesians chapter 2, if you come down to verse 20, let's go to verse 19. It says, consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Now, notice what Paul does here. This is fascinating. He is drawing upon the idea of the temple, which is built upon the idea of the tabernacle. But now the articles of furniture and the um, uh, fabric and resources are not physical. They're people. And... <laughs> That includes uh, both Jew and Gentile, and they become the dwelling place of God, and they are a holy temple unto the Lord, and they are fit together. He's using kind of a construction imagery here. The whole building is joined together and rises, interesting uh, use of terms there, and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord, and you are being built together. So it's as if when we become followers of God in Christ, uh, we are a part of, <clears throat> of this spiritual temple. And as other people join into the kingdom of God, they too are part of that structure. And they too uh, are a part of uh, the resources that make up the dwelling place of God. Does that make sense to everybody? So it moves from physical to spiritual in the New Testament. All right. Now, each piece of furniture in the tabernacle 
uh, serves a special purpose. So what I want to do is look at those. So we're right here. If you want to come back to Exodus chapter 25. And you're going to note a couple times here that Exodus will mention these articles, not just in one spot, but will sometimes repeat it. So in the case here, you have a description in chapter 25. You have a follow-up to it in chapter 37. So the Ark and the Mercy Seat are mentioned here. Let's look at chapter 25 and verse 10. So the first piece of furniture that is to go into this uh, sanctuary is the Ark of the Covenant. And it says in verse 10, have them make a chest of acacia wood, two and a half cubits long, a cubit and a half wide, and a cubit and a half high. So if you have a study Bible, they will usually translate the size of that uh, down at the bottom or in the margins of your Bible. So here in my New International Version, this isn't a study Bible, but it does give to us some measurements here. Uh, so here in the Ark, you have this idea of it being about three and three quarters feet long by two and one quarter feet uh, wide and high. And so what you have is this, this box. And it's this extraordinary box in the sense that it contains certain things in it that are important uh, to the ratification of the covenant that God made with his people. The tablets with the commandments upon it is a part of that. And then in verse 17, it talks about uh, the mercy seat. It says, make an atonement cover of pure gold, two and a half cubits long and a cubit and a half wide, and make two cherubim, two angels, hammered out of gold at the ends of the cover, and make one uh, cherub on one end and the second cherub on the other, and make the cherubim of one piece with a cover at the two ends. So you see how detailed this information is. Here's what it looks like. There's the Ark of the Covenant. And um, by the description, uh, it, this box with the cherubim on top contains, as you have right here, the um, the tablets with the 10 words or 10 commandments. But it also contains uh, some manna, which sustains the people through the wilderness. And Aaron's rod, the high priest, uh, that buds as reflective of this um, special tool that is given to Aaron as a display of his authority among the people and to uh, to carry out God's uh, design of him being an intercessor on their behalf. So when you look at the Ark of the Covenant, it's kind of symbolic of God's throne. And the Holy of Holies is symbolic of God's throne room. So what you have is something physical that is representing something far more spiritual and ethereal, uh, because remember, I just read out of Hebrews chapter 9, this is simply a prefigurement of something that already exists in creation and in the heavens. So the Ark of the Covenant 
becomes symbolic in some ways of God's glory. And the ark dwells among mankind. Now, what's fascinating is how the ark uh, representing the throne room of God then finds its fulfillment in Christ. Again, um, some of the New Testament let letters allude to certain things that become more spiritual than they are physical, as we see here in Exodus. So again, in Ephesians uh, chapter 1, it, this is interesting, the way the Apostle Paul describes the ministry of Christ. I'm going to read verses 19 through 23. It says here uh, in verse 18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glory inheritance in the saints and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title uh, that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God has placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Now that's a complex plex paragraph, but what it's saying is this this temporary throne, uh, the tabernacle containing the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat, becomes fulfilled in Christ as he enters the actual throne room of God, wherever that is, you know, spatially. So um, Christ there uh, is exalted and... The glory of God is seen, but we have to see it with spiritual eyes. That's why he prays that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, that you might be able to know that. So you take the physical and it becomes something more than physical. It becomes something spiritual as well. Any thoughts on that? So back in Hebrews uh, chapter 9, it's interesting, the writer references what's inside uh, the Ark of the Covenant. So here it says, um, I begin in verse 1, because it always helps to begin at the beginning of the paragraph. Now, the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up. In the first room were the lampstand, the table, and consecrated bread. This is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered Ark of the Covenant. This Ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. Above the Ark were the cherubim of the glory, overshadowing the atonement cover. But we cannot discuss these things in detail now. So, in other words, there's a lot more to it, but he moves on to other topics in the book of Hebrews. So, this jar that holds the manna becomes representative of 40 years of provision that God gives to Israel during their time of uh, wandering. 
Now, even though um, that was something that occurred at a moment or an era of time, it's interesting that Jesus alludes to it when he refers to himself as the true bread from heaven in John 6.32. So the idea is what that what sustained them in the wilderness is now sustained in the person of Jesus. So you have these prefigurements that Jesus will draw upon. The other item that's in the Ark of the Covenant is Aaron's rod that budded. And in some ways, it foreshadows the exaltation of Christ as the legitimate high priest. So it's almost as if Aaron's priesthood or the Levitical priesthood is a temporary uh, priesthood until Christ finalizes the work as the great high priest. So Hebrews 8, 1 and 2 says, the point of what we are saying is this, we do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by man. Every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, and so it was necessary for this one also had to have something to offer. If he were on earth, he would not be a priest, for there were already men who offer the gifts prescribed by the law, they serve at a sanctuary that is, and here we go, a copy and a shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle. See to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on this mountain. So in other words, the specificity of all these things in Exodus is to prefigure and shadow what is ultimately fulfilled in Christ. Does that make sense? Now, that might not be easy for us who are not Jewish. For those of us who are not familiar with all the details of the Jewish law, I don't think we can appreciate it quite as much as a Messianic Christian, a Jewish Christian that takes all of this that's part of their culture and is able to see it fulfilled in Jesus Messiah. So it's uh, uh, that's probably something that um, must be absolutely mind-blowing uh, to a Messianic Jewish person that uh, finally sees that the fulfillment of what was revealed in the Old Testament is ultimately fulfilled in Christ. This other piece, the mercy seat, is the lid that's on top of that box. And it is the place where uh, the blood of the sacrifice would be sprinkled. Now, what's fascinating about this is this uh, idea of the mercy seat uh, can also be translated the place of propitiation. And in some translations, and uh, in the book of Romans and in the book of Hebrews, in some translations, that's the actual word that is used, like in the King James Version, that this is the place of propitiation, a place of satisfaction, a place that pleases God. Um, NIV talks about it in, in, in terms of being the place of atonement. Now, atonement is an interesting word because uh, we think of it in terms of Old Testament 
reference, but what is the means whereby we become at one with God? That's the idea of atonement, at one meant. Um, atonement is this idea of in Christ, the dwelling of God is found uh, through the presence of Christ by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So you see a lot of New Testament can be wrapped into this um, this tabernacle uh, pattern as well. Any thoughts or questions, comments? So the mercy seat is right on top of the ark? Yes. So let's go back to the picture here. So this is the mercy seat right here. This that has the, the, cherubs, the cherubs on top of it. So this is this is the Ark of the Covenant, the box itself, which contains the commandments, Aaron's rod, the buds, and um, the manna, and the mercy seat is this lid. Okay. Okay. So I was confused because I thought it was um, for sins in there, and then the priest would offer the blood sacrifice so that, and the angel's wings would cover it, so that was covered by the blood and then jesus blood covered the sacrifice once and for all that we don't mm -hmm. that's yeah that's new testament language that's in several spots in some of the epistles it does use that language mm -hmm. so the sins are in the box or well no i think it's i think the blood is representative of the sacrifice of repentance the sacrifice of um you know uh of, of of paying for sins because the only time that would happen is on yom kippur the day of atonement so that would only happen once a year the the idea of the blood on at the place of propitiation or place of atonement is this idea of where the glory of God dwells. And if if we were to expand this theologically a little bit, it's kind of the idea that mankind has a way of diminishing the glory of God by our actions, our sins of commission and omission, uh, those things that taint the world around us. And the blood is a kind of a symbol of, of washing that clean again so that the glory of God can be fully on display again in the created order. So it's not just for forgiveness. It's also this idea of the glory of God has been tarnished by the actions of man. And so in the, in the uh, day of atonement, you have a new beginning. So once a year, uh, Jewish uh, people will still uh, call the day of atonement uh, the most holy day of the year for them, even though there's no temple that's standing, and even though there's no physical sacrifice, and there's no literal blood that's being spread upon an Ark of the Covenant that we no longer have, uh, even though, you know, Indiana Jones found it, supposedly, <laughs> uh, you know, you uh, have this idea that symbolically, the people understand that in the course of any given year, not just individuals, but communities as well, um, tarnish God's glory and tarnish the creation. And um, 
there needs to be a, a, a do-over, a start-over through forgiveness and that type of thing. So um, I was, go ahead. I was somewhere. I remembered it saying, and the veil was torn. So that, that's, that's in the New Testament. Yes. And we'll get to that. I'll be in God's presence without having that sacrifice and the high priest only to like that's intercede. Right. Okay. That's exactly right. And we'll get to that because we're going to talk about uh, the veil here in just a second. The veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies uh, on, on the day of Christ's death, that veil ripped in two from top to bottom, we're told in the gospels. So it's the idea of a new way a brand That's new right, when he died, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right, here we go. So there's another article in there. Uh, it's called The Table is Showbread. Take a look at verse 23 if you're in Exodus. Uh, go back to chapter 25. And again, uh, this appears later in the Torah. Uh, you can find this same thing in Leviticus 24. It says here, make a table of acacia wood. And I'm not going to read the dimensions of it, but it's here's this idea of um, a a table that has um, has bread that sits upon it, and there's twelve loaves of bread. And if you look at verse thirty here of chapter twenty five, it says, "Put the bread of the presence on this table to be before me at all times." Boy, that's a beautiful uh, picture. It's the idea that the 12 loaves of bread represent the 12 tribes, and they are always in the presence of God. God. The symbol is this beautiful idea of God gazing with delight on this bread offering that is always before him. And it is the idea of fellowship. It's the idea of communion of God with his people, um, that type of thing. Uh, in the Leviticus reference, you can kind of draw this idea that says it's kind of um, the fellowship that we have with God that helps support our spiritual life. So here's what the table of showbread looks like. So it, again, it's interesting to me that many of these pieces of furniture have poles in them as a way of carrying these items. It's almost as if... Um, don't put your hands directly on it. Don't taint it. Don't tarnish it. Don't dirty it. Uh, that type of thing. But here, what you have is this uh, table of showbread that actually is uh, something that uh, represents um, this ongoing sustainable relationship with God. We are always before his presence. Uh, and uh, the priest that would change out this bread this bread on a regular uh, basis um is something uh that shows that there is uh an ongoing relationship it's not kind of a once for all it's not stale um it's not something that is to be seen as something that is thrown away because the priests would eat the bread um in the book of Leviticus, chapter 24, again, if you were to go back to Leviticus 24, verse 9, uh, you'll see that part of the instruction is how the priests are to use the bread and, and consume the bread 
Uh, and again, it just, uh, just demonstrates this idea of intimacy with God and uh, our representation um, before God. So again, some of these represent a connection to Jesus. So Jesus uh, is going to uh, describe him as the uh, bread of life uh, and this foreshadowing, this true bread from heaven is this uh, ability to continue to sustain our relationship with God. Interesting nativity uh, connection here. Jesus is born in Bethlehem, and the translation of that uh, city's name is House of Bread. Uh, so, it you know, here you have the table of showbread kind of typifying um, Jesus coming to feed his people with spiritual and and physical nourishment. Um, he multiplies the loaves and the fish, feeds the multitude, um, and and yet he talks about this bread that sustains people from the inside out, not what's from the outside going in. And um, again, all of these things are connected uh, majestically uh, to the person of Jesus. And I think he's very conscious uh, of making these claims uh, because he is connecting into his own culture. He's connecting back to this very important uh, place where people met God. In his day, it was the temple, uh, not the tabernacle, but it's the same idea. So, any thoughts there? Also within uh, the tabernacle is what's called the golden lampstand. You'll see here, uh, there's a description of it in chapter 25, chapter 37, and chapter 39 in Exodus. But you're here in Exodus chapter 25. If you let your eyes skim down to verse 31, it says here, make a lampstand of pure gold and hammer it out base and shaft as flower-like cups, buds, and blossoms shall be of one piece with it. And that talks about six branches are extended from the sides of the lampstand, three on one side, three on the other. And um, what you then have, if you jump down to verse 37, it says, uh, then make it seven lamps. So in the middle, there's also uh, a light. And it says here, these seven lamps, set them up, um, set them up on it so that they light the space in front of it. Its wick trim, uh, its wick trimmers and trays are to be made of pure gold. So we've just looked at a few pieces of furniture and all of these things are made out of the, the finest of materials, uh, gold, uh, uh, or pieces of uh, material that are overlaid with gold. So here's what the lampstand might look like. Uh, so you might be familiar with this image because I'm sure all of us have seen a menorah and it's kind oh. of built on that idea. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, but here you see the buds and blossoms uh, along the way here. Um, and you see the three on each side with the one in the middle. Now, what's fascinating, again, connecting to the New Testament uh, Jesus will call himself the light of the world, but 
when um when the when the writer of book of revelation john the revelator writes to the seven churches in asia minor the way he introduces the message that he is going to give to each of them is that they are like a lampstand as well so this image is is found in various places and again this is where we find some of the foundational elements of that um so here we find uh the lampstand that is to illuminate the structure for the priest when he goes into the holy place thoughts there i had a quick one on the bread thing yeah uh, let's go back to it remembered about um being i was raised catholic so mm -hmm. the the Eucharist was locked in the tabernacle. That's what they yeah. call it. And yeah. that the bread of Jesus, you know, you think they think it, it's actually his body, you know, that's mm -hmm. but um I was like I never really put it together. Anyways. <laughs> uh, well, what's fascinating, you know, working at the funeral home, um we do funeral services in a lot of different Catholic churches. I don't see that tabernacle, that square um, thing up on the altar as much anymore in Catholic churches as I once did. But you are right. At one time, there was that structure that was kind of uh, was built to look like the tabernacle or where it was opened up and the elements of the Eucharist were contained within that. What's fascinating now is, at least in funerals, they call the 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 bread uh the gifts and so uh usually they are some of that uh, it, th which is necessary for uh the eucharist is actually brought up front by members of the family in yeah. the, in the funeral and then the priest also has his assistants up there uh, as well as they prepare that. But you're right, Kay, that is built up, uh, very much so upon this idea yeah. that it comes out of the tabernacle here. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. And you see how then they've taken the Old Testament and they've connected it to Jesus, who said when he was uh, establishing communion this is my body broken for you. So oh. there, there, there is this connection that is being made from old testament to the person of christ as well so all right excellent very good okay let's keep going now you were just mentioning the curtain and the veil okay so now in chapter 26 of exodus it's also found in chapter 36 it says, make the tabernacle with 10 curtains of finely twisted linen and blue, purple and scarlet yarn with cherubim worked into them by a skilled craftsman. Again, measurements are given. Uh, it, it is given in relationship to the type of material that is to be used. Uh, if you jump down to verse 7, it says, make curtains of goat hair for the tent over the tabernacle, 11 altogether. Um, it even says down in verse 10, make 50 loops along the edge of uh, uh, of the end curtain in one set and also all the edge of the end curtain in the other set. So it's very specific. Um, 
those individuals that uh, are seamstress and and work with that, they they work on a pattern, and that's what's being laid out here. Uh, mm -hmm. Esty's mom was the only one that I know that could make a wedding dress out of uh, out of her head and not a specific pattern and combine different patterns. She made Esty's wedding dress, uh, you know, out of a concept that Esty gave her. It was amazing, really. But here it's very specific. And um, what you have is this veil, this veil that separates the holy place from the holy of holies. Um, it's very significant to observe that only the priesthood is in this structure. Ordinary people never actually saw the real beauty of this structure because mm -hmm. they were never allowed inside. So yeah. all they saw were the outer courtyard and the materials around the uh, holy place, but they never got to see the beauty from the inside out. And this idea of separateness of God is kind of built in. It's baked into this. Um, and the word veil actually means, there's a Hebrew word here, parakef, which means to be separate. And it kind of describes this barrier uh, shutting God in and shutting people out, which is in some ways kind of counter counterintuitive to what has already been said. I want to dwell among people. I want to dwell among my people. And yet there's this veil that is keeping them separate until, and here's exactly what you mentioned a moment ago, Kay. When Jesus dies, the temple veil tears from top to bottom. And as it's torn in two, it symbolizes a new way uh, that Christ has opened up uh, a way to God. There's no separation between God and man anymore. Yes. If you want the cross-reference for that, here it is. It's Matthew 27, verse 51. That's where you'll find that. Um, again, Hebrews, uh, I keep going back to Hebrews, and I warned you that I was going to do that. Um, in chapter 10 of Hebrews, Again, at the beginning of chapter 10, um, he talks about shadows. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. Well, if you jump down to verse 20, there is a reference here to the veil. Uh, and it, it's kind of a, there's a new way that is created. Take a look at verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place, not just the holy place, not just the outer court, the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain. Now notice what he calls the curtain. His body. Yeah. The body of Jesus is the curtain. And it says, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near. Here's this idea of dwelling near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. So again, the writer of Hebrews keeps drawing back to the tabernacle and making uh, correlations to it. And here he talks about, the veil being the body of Jesus himself. And as Jesus's body is ripped open in pain, 
it creates a way forward into the uh, presence of God. Does that make sense? Again, there's deep meanings here that I'm not so sure that we will ever, ever be able to get full appreciation of. But the writer of Hebrews seems to be trying to bridge that gap between the Old Testament tabernacle and the New Testament reality of what is finished in Jesus. So, so here's the veil. Here's what it looks like. Um, it, it, it also has representation of angelic beings on, on it. Um, not this Sunday, but a week from Sunday, we're going to talk about um, an, an angelic assembly that comes at the birth of Christ. And we're going to dive, dive in a little bit uh, into what is this angelic order and what are they? what is it designed to do for mankind? And so you see angels, symbols, a couple different places. You see it on the mercy seat and you see it on the veil that separates um, the the holy place and the holy of holies. So in front of that curtain, uh, you will have another piece of furniture that is called the altar of incense. So in Exodus, you find that first mentioned in chapter 30. And in chapter 30, it says here, make an altar of acacia wood again specific measurements again uh two gold rings um on each side poles of acacia wood there's a lot of these things that are used to uh, facilitate the movement now this is a practical thing when you think about it since people are moving the tabernacle to where god is going this makes it easier on people uh, as they carry these uh, pieces of furniture to their next dwelling place. Uh, so it's, it, it is something that, that I think represents um, the idea of don't, don't dirty this object, but it's also very practical as they could put it on their shoulders to carry it in movement to the next place. So this here uh, incense represents, in many ways, it represents prayer. It's the idea of the prayers of the people that go up before God. And what you have is Aaron is instructed to burn incense on this altar of incense, which looks like this, um, twice a day. And so, Again, I want to come back to Kay's cross-referencing to her upbringing in the Catholic Church. Incense is a very important part of Catholic services as well. Okay. Uh, so again, there's a lot of carryover uh, into the type of liturgy that the Catholic Church uses in their okay. worship. So uh, here, what you have uh, is interesting, again... You have the measurements, but the the idea of what it means is, again, found in the book of Hebrews. So in chapter 9, verses 3 and 4, it says, Behind the second uh, curtain was a room called the Holy Place, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered Ark of the Covenant. And so he keeps referencing this 
in uh, in relationship to even though the temple, I believe, by the time the book of Hebrews is written, the temple is probably not standing. It's already been uh, destroyed uh, by mm -hmm. uh, the Roman invasion. But here, I think he is drawing upon to uh, Jewish Christians. You can still appreciate this as it is fulfilled through Christ. Mm -hmm. All right, we're getting close to the end here. So now out in the outer courtyard, you have a brazen altar. And that's in chapter 27 and Leviticus 1 through 7. I mean, seven chapters on the book of Leviticus lays out the different types of offerings that are to be laid out. Here you have, again, a, a this elaborate, this very elaborate piece of furniture here. And as you look at verses 1 through 8, it talks about this altar, uh, how it is built, uh, where it is to be placed. Uh, and it's not really till you get to the book of Leviticus that you see all the different types of offerings uh, that are presented. And it brings about a question that I think people have when we look back on ancient, the ancient Near East. Why was, um, why was sacrifice so important to that world back then, literal animal sacrifices? And some scholars have suggested maybe these different components are all kind of built into the idea of the sacrificial system. It's a gift we're offering to find favor from the gods. Uh, there's a certain uh, magical element to it uh, that if we offer sacrifice, it'll spare us from illness. Uh, there's the idea of communion uh, to uh uh, to be in relationship with God, to draw upon his power, worship, homage, um, our dependence upon God, our praise of God, and finally atonement. So in each of the ancient Near Eastern tribal um, peoples, all of them had elements of sacrificial offerings. Some of them uh, included human beings, unfortunately. But here in Judaism, it's always animals, and they are to be unblemished. Uh, they are not to be uh, secondhand. They're not to be leftovers. They're not to be um, given as, well, let's get rid of this lamb. This one's sick anyways. Um, in fact, uh, the prophets will get down on the people who uh, try to keep the best animals for themselves rather than offering them to God. Now, what's fascinating, this too becomes a point of ex uh, of exploitation in the New Testament. You remember that um, Jesus will enter into the temple area when people are bringing anything from uh, a dove to a goat. Um, yeah. uh, there was the den of thieves there they um that would say that animal is insufficient but we just happen to have one that meets the criteria that's kosher that you can buy and jesus will go into the temple area and he will say you've made my father's house 
a den of thieves. It's to be a house of prayer, but you've made it into a marketplace. So, you know, even in this, uh, people find ways to make money. And um, what you find is the the detail that is given in the book of Leviticus is to try to preserve the true nature of what this is, an act of worship, an act of sacrifice, an act of forgiveness, all of these type of things that are built into uh, the system. So if you're going to offer up, and here's a picture of the brazen altar. Again, you have poles uh, for the purpose of uh, taking it to the next place. If you're going to be offering sacrifices um, on a regular basis, and remember the high priest only goes into the Holy of Holies once a year on the Day of Atonement, but the daily sacrifices, the priest would get soiled and bloody. And so there's the last piece of furniture, which is the brazen laver, or um, it is the uh, place where... Um, the priests could wash themselves uh, from uh, all of the things, whether it was dust or blood, uh, for cleansing. And here's a picture of what the bra it is believed the brazen labor, um, labor looks like. You find this in chapter 30 of uh, Exodus. So spread throughout all of these chapters is uh, descriptions of, of the pieces of furniture. But here you have, in verse 17, Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a brazen, uh, bronze basin with its bronze stand for washing. Place it in the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in. Aaron and his sons are to wash their hands and their feet with water from it. And whenever they enter the tent of meeting, they shall wash with water so that they will not die. Interesting death sentence for those that um, casually wander into the presence of God without preparing themselves first. Also, when they approach the altar to minister by presenting an offering made to the Lord by fire, they shall wash their hands and feet so that they will not die. This is to be a lasting ordinance for Aaron and the, his descendants for the generations to come. Again, let me go back to Kay's observation growing up Catholic. The priests will wash themselves as well before they begin to uh, handle um, uh, the Eucharist and and distribute it. So there's a, still a lot of symbolism uh, that you'll find uh, within Catholicism. And really, um, there's elements of it that's found in other uh, high-end liturgical churches, whether it's Episcopalian or Lutheran or other things, you'll find elements uh, of this that harken all the way back to the book of Exodus. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that's what I have for us tonight. So is there any observations or comments or questions that you might have that um, we want to finish up with tonight? The altar of incense is before you get into the Holy of Holies and the brazen altar and brazen lever is out where everybody can see it that's correct the the laver and the uh brazen altar are out in the outer courtyard so let me go back where people put where people bring their offerings correct so uh if i go back to share let me go back i 
probably shouldn't have done that quite yet. Let me go back and I, and we'll go back to this picture. Let me go all the way to the beginning of our time tonight. So take a look here. I'm almost there. Okay, so here's the picture of the tabernacle. So here you'll find um, the brazen altar and uh, the laver that the, is washed. Here's This is representing animals for sacrifice. This is representing, I realize it's not real clear, uh, the priest. Now, I'm not real sure what in, the, in this picture... Uh, or this model, what these are to represent here. But here you have the holy place, and then within the holy place, you have the veil, and behind that veil is where you have the Ark of the Covenant. And mm -hmm. the altar of incense is is in the holy place. But in not in the holy of holies. Not in the holy of holies. It's so in that's the only thing that's in there Well, before in you get into the holy of holies. No, you also have... Uh, not uh, you not only have the uh, incense, but you have the table of showbread uh, with the twelve loaves, and you have the menorah or the lampstand that's in there as well. And then inside the holy of holies is the ark with the mercy the ark seat. and the mercy seat. That's, that's correct. The only thing that's in mm -hmm. the holy of holies. Yep, that's right. Okay. Good questions. So there are. On YouTube, there's they've done some nice modeling of the tabernacle. If you wanted to take the time and do a search, uh, you can find videos that will kind of, and I showed you part of that, I think it was last week. Um, if you kind of walk through it, you would be able to, to get a feel for what it looked like. Now, again, um, we're, you know, anybody who has ever tried to build something, we built this house 20 some odd years ago and you look at a schematic but you don't really you really don't get a feel for the place until you're actually inside of it so um even though we're given this schematic in the book of exodus these pictures in many ways are our best guesstimates you know what i'm saying it, it's not like this is a photograph. So you just have to keep that in mind. Um, maybe there were elements of it that couldn't be described or wasn't described uh, specifically, you know, as the way it was built and how it was anchored down and all that other mm -hmm. stuff. That, so just something to keep in mind. So, all right. So, like I said before, uh, next week, we'll uh, finish this study. There's one more real important chapter in Exodus. Uh, it talks about the priestly garments. So I'll touch upon that next week a little bit. Each of the uh, elements of the priestly garment is representative and symbolic in many ways, too. So uh, we'll talk about that, and then we'll kind of put some finishing touches on this particular study, okay? All right. Any last questions, comments? Wasn't there somebody that they thought the ark was falling and they touched it and they died? Yeah. Um, that's in, I think, 
first or second Samuel. I, I'd have to go look at it. Okay. So what they did, instead of carrying it by the, the poles, somebody said, boy, we would save our back if we put it on a cart. So they put the Ark <laughs> of the Covenant on a cart. They're pushing it along. It hits a rut or something. It begins to, to fall off this cart. And the natural instinct was to, to you know, protect it from falling. And so they touch the ark, and and the story goes that the individual that did that was struck dead. Now, that brings yes. up all kinds of eth ethical conundrums when you think mm -hmm. about it. But anyways, that's the story that you're referring to, Beth. Yeah, yeah, okay. Right. Anyone else? All right. I hope you have a good evening. Go get yourself a cup of hot chocolate or hot tea and... Enjoy the rest of the evening uh, before <laughs> we face tomorrow. How's that sound? Yep. <laughs> okay. Good, right. night. Uh, good night. Everybody. Good night, everybody. Have a good one. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.